Amen. Well, thanks, Brittany. If you uh, have heard Brittany talk a lot, which I have, you can sense that her voice is just a little bit hoarse this morning. I don't know what she was like shouting and screaming about until 11, 12 p.m. last night. Um, something apparently, and so she's come in a little bit hoarse today. Um, there are a few members of our staff who they, they belong to the sky blue part of our state, and I made sure that they understood their jobs were on the line if they made too many obnoxious comments about the result of last night's game. Um, anyway, if we don't know one another, we don't normally open by talking about basketball. Uh, my name is James Sharp. Um, I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my joy uh, to welcome you to worship with us at Life Church this morning. We're going to be in Joshua chapter 22 this morning for the whole spring semester we've been walking through this Old Testament book of Joshua. Today we are near the end. Next week actually we will wrap up our study of this book. Today we're studying Joshua 22. And so I hope you have a Bible with you or at the very least a Bible app on your device that you can get um, in front of your face here. Um, I'll meet you in Joshua 22 in just a minute. Before we do that I need to speak about two things if I can. Um, and I have the microphone, so I can. Um, number one, uh, if you were in this worship gathering last Sunday, um, you were present for, man, the kindest way we could put it would be just a significant disruption um, to our time together. You might also have received an email from me about that this week. Um, if you're completely out of the loop, uh, like the simplest way to describe it is that there was a gentleman who was in the room who um, decided that he didn't completely agree with some of the things that I was saying and wanted to let everybody know that he didn't agree with some of the things that I was saying. Um, he became a pretty significant disruption to us. Um, he was escorted out of the room by some people on our safety team and actually was cared for outside um, by members of our church. And so I'm really grateful for how we were able to care for him. You can imagine the kind of state one must be in in order to attend a worship gathering and then disrupt a worship gathering. He was in such a state that he left uh, cared for and supported by the people of our church. And so I was grateful for that. Um, I'm also grateful for the fact that that's just a, like a helpful recalibration or reminder of what's really happening like when we come into the room on Sunday morning, right? And what I mean is about what's really happening inside of each and every one of us. Um, you can have the impression that like the people who show up in a church building like this one and who are a part of a church like ours, that that's a sign of the fact that like they've got their stuff together. But I hope you realize that the opposite is actually true, right? Like the moment that you choose to attend a public gathering of God's people who sit under the truth of the gospel, that is a declaration to everyone else who is a part of that gathering that you don't have your stuff together. Right, that you aren't okay, and that you therefore recognize your need for a Savior who can redeem you from your sin and from your brokenness. And as my friend who was sitting over there was disrupting me last week, I just thought, you know, he's a little bit um, less discreet about the mess that's going on in his heart than most of us are. But at the end of the day, like his mess, perhaps it was more severe last week than it typically is for us when we we're in this place. Uh, but categorically, it's no different from the mess that's inside each and every one of us when we are inside this place. And so I just hope you realize that, and, and I even want us as a church to, to like own that to a degree. And here's what I mean by that. Um, first of all, like when you come into this space, like you don't have to pretend that your business is good, right? You don't have to pretend that your life is clean. You don't have to pretend that everything is great um, because 
by merit of the fact that you are here, you are telling all of us that your life isn't great and that you aren't living clean and that things aren't good. By merit of the fact that you are here to sit under my preaching of this gospel or anyone else's preaching of this gospel, that's an open declaration of the fact that you're broken. So stop pretending otherwise. But then number two, also stop assuming that everyone else who's sitting around you has their stuff together. Right? Stop assuming that like the other people who are also here in this space with us are people who have their lives in order, are people who aren't about to like careen into some kind of like serious situation that might derail their faith and even their life. Let's be a people who like love one another and care about one another well enough that we're not just going to sit and assume that the people around us are okay. So that means you've got a job when you come in here, right? Like if you don't know the people that are around you, you need to recognize the fact that God has ordained you in the seat that you're in and them in the seat that they are in. And they better not leave here strangers, right? If you don't know them yet, that's fine. But before we're done today, you better know them. And, and even more than that, you better love them, like learn how you can pray for them, Ask if there are any particular ways that you can show care to them. But make sure that we understand the fact that like, when we come into this place, we need one another. God has designed us to thrive on and rely upon the ministry of the body. And that happens even when we're here in this big room on Sunday morning with all of these people. So don't pretend that you're okay. Don't assume that everyone else is okay. That's my takeaway from the events of last Sunday. I pray that you will take those same things away too. That's one thing we need to talk about. Here's the other thing. Brittany just talked about Good Friday. We're super excited about that. Um, we're also super excited about Easter Sunday. And a lot of churches, like when it comes time for Easter Sunday, the attitude is sort of, man, Easter is our Super Bowl, right? It's, it's the biggest Sunday of the year, and we're going to pull out all the stops. And that's just really not how we roll here at Life Church. Um, we hope that we lift up the resurrected Jesus every week, 52 weeks of the year. And so while we will do everything that we do on Easter Sunday as best as we can, um, we don't want to pretend that that's like the only Sunday of the year that we're really excited about the fact that Jesus isn't dead anymore, right? <laughs> every Sunday of the year, we celebrate the truth that Christ has kicked sin and Satan and death in the teeth and that he is not bound in a tomb, but instead is gloriously resurrected and reigning at this present moment from the right hand of the throne of God. But we still recognize that we do that every year, every week of every year. And we still recognize the fact that, man, there are a lot of people in our county um, who have a really thin understanding of what it means to serve and follow Jesus the kind of understanding that leads them to think, you know what, if God's going to take attendance at church, he's probably going to do it on Easter Sunday, and so I better be there on Easter Sunday. Um, and so we expect that there are going to be more people in the room than there typically are two weeks from today, which means we need you. Um, we need you to do a few things, actually. Number one, we need you, if you're going to be here, um, just to plan to serve that weekend, right? If you don't regularly serve on one of our teams, like find a way to elbow your way into one of our teams for Sunday Easter Sunday, um, two weeks from today. Maybe that means you talk to Katie and Christine about finding a way to plug in in Life Kids. We anticipate we'll have lots more children Easter Sunday than typical. Maybe you talk to Brittany about serving on our connection team. If you'll fill out our connection card, there are all of the ways that you can get plugged in here. And we'd love to deploy you to serve alongside us as we serve the people of our county who will be here on April 17th. So serve, that's number one. Uh, number two, invite. 
Um, I hope that you are praying about and considering the friend or neighbor or coworker who doesn't know the Lord or who isn't plugged into a church. I, I pray that you're thinking about and praying about ways that you can invite them to be here with us. Um, I pray that you'll also um, take a minute, if you're on social media, and share the details of our Easter services on social media. And so that's actually really easy. I have a, I have a pretty low view of social media generally, um, but this is one way that I believe that the Lord can really amplify our witness as we prepare for Easter Sunday. Um, because you can just go to you know, Life Church NC's Facebook page or Instagram or whatever um, and like or share the details that we've already posted on our pages about Easter Sunday. Um, and that helps us to kind of amplify like who hears about and is invited to what we're doing here. And so I hope you'll do that today. I hope you'll do that again a week from today. But just use that as a way to just continue to push out there the fact that we are here and that we love people and we're delighted to help people treasure Christ above all things with us. So serve, invite, share. And then, man, church, we have two weeks. Be praying that the Lord would use the time that we will gather with people on Easter Sunday to reveal more of his beauty, more of his goodness, more of his glory to people. That the riches of glory available to us because of the grace of the resurrected Jesus Christ, that those things would just shine so brightly and brilliantly through the nonsense of, you know, like Easter dresses and egg hunts and things like that. Those things are fine, but let's not pretend for a minute that that's what Easter is about. Let's pray that what what Easter is truly about can shine through all of that here among our people as we gather two weeks from today. Cool? Yeah, great. I'm glad you're with me. Um, Wow. That was like a sermon and I haven't even started. So uh, let me pray for us again and then we'll look at God's word together. God, we thank you for the fact that you reveal your goodness and grace to us in your word. Help us to hear it now and be transformed. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, let me catch you up on what's happened so far in the book of Joshua. This is like the 35,000-foot view of the book. Chapters 1 through 5, that's part 1. Joshua and the people of Israel, they enter the land that God has promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. That's the promised land, the land of Canaan. Chapters 1 through 5, Joshua and the people, they enter the promised land. Chapters 6 through 11, that's part 2. Joshua and the people, they take or they conquer the promised land. They, they overcome and defeat in military battle the inhabitants of that land so that they can take it for themselves. Part 3, chapters 13 through 21. Joshua and the people of Israel, they inhabit the land that God has promised to them. In other words, they like settle into all of its different cities and regions and figure out who's going to live where and, you know, the, the people, they, they inhabit the land. Then finally, the fourth and last part of the book, chapters 22 through 24, Joshua and the people, they strive to keep the land that God has promised them. Let's see what chapter 22 holds for us this morning. Read with me. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful 
to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now we need a little bit of background to understand what's happening in these first six verses. So let's do a little bit of background and then I'll give us some observations for us today in light of these first six verses. Most of the action in the book of Joshua has happened on the west side of the Jordan River. Um, that's where the promised land is. That's the land of Canaan. Those are all the cities that needed to be conquered. That's all on the west side of the Jordan River. And that's the place where the majority of the nation of Israel settles. That's the land that they inhabit. But the people from the tribe of Reuben and the people from the tribe of Gad and then half of the people from the tribe of Manasseh, way back in Numbers 32, decided that they didn't want to live on the west side of the Jordan River. They wanted to live on the east side of the Jordan River. By the way, I really practiced this week trying to like do west and east for y'all, which is like backwards for me, and my, my brain just can't handle it, right? I'm not smart enough to consistently invert that for you, so I'm trying not to use my hands at all, which is super awkward for James Sharp, like I have to sit on them or something, but anyway, so you, you, you're with me so far. Two and a half tribes on the, let's see, east side of the Jordan River, the other tribes on the west side of the Jordan River. Now, in Joshua 1, Joshua goes to the people from Manasseh and the people from Gad and the people from Reuben and he says, y'all, don't forget that when Moses told you in Numbers 32 that you could settle east of the Jordan River, that when it's time for us to actually go in and conquer the land on the west side of the Jordan River, that that you're going to come with us and help us fight those fools. And the people from Reuben and the people from Gad and the people from Manasseh said, yeah, you're totally right. We promised Moses that we would do that, so let's go and do that. And in Joshua chapter 1, that's exactly what happens. The people from Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, they go with Joshua and the Israelites into the western part of the promised land, and they help conquer the promised land. But now all the fighting's done, right? We're now in the let's keep the promised land stage of the book. And so Joshua, he goes here in these verses to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh, and he says to them, you can go home. And they do. So that's the background. Now just a few observations, if I can. I want you to notice, as we look at these verses, that the actions of the two and a half tribes that live on the eastern side of the river, like they're described here in terms of obedience, right? In other words, the Reubenites and the Gadites and half the Manassehites, they didn't cross the Jordan River and fight because they felt like it. They didn't cross the Jordan River and fight because it seemed like a good idea. They didn't cross the Jordan River and fight because they thought it would make them good people. They crossed the Jordan River to fight with the people of Israel because God commanded them to do it. They did it because they were obeying God. I think you can hear that. Look again at verse 2. 
Joshua, he says to them, he says, you have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. Now, if we stop there, it would seem to us like this is what um, Moses has commanded and what Joshua has commanded, but actually Moses and Joshua commanded those things because God commanded those things. That's clear in verse 3. Joshua goes on and he says, you have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. That's what Joshua says to and about the people from Reuben and Gad and Manasseh. You have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. Joshua is celebrating the fact that the people from these two and a half tribes have been obedient. He's celebrating their obedience. What does that mean for us? Well, this is the most obvious thing I can say in response to that. This is the lowest hanging fruit on the tree. The fact that Joshua celebrates the obedience of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassehites, well, that means it is possible for us to obey God just as it was possible for them to obey God. Actually, I would say it's even more possible for us to obey God than it was for them to obey God because these Reubenites and Gadites and Manassehites, they're they're citizens of Israel, they're children of God's covenant, but they don't have everything that we have. They don't have the revealed word of God in their hands in the form of the Holy Bible. They don't have the Holy Spirit of God himself living inside of them and empowering their obedience. And so if obedience was possible for Reuben and Gad and Manasseh, Obedience is more than possible for us. But if you're a Christian today, did you know that you don't have to sin? Right? Did you know that like, sin is not inevitable in your life? Jesus has sent his Holy Spirit to, to dwell in you, to equip you to know him and love him and follow him and serve him and to obey him. Furthermore, Jesus has broken the power of sin in your life so that sin is no longer your master, but Lord Jesus is your master, which means you don't have to sin. And I say that because like the Bible actually teaches pretty consistently that remembering that sin is not our master is one of the keys to acting like sin is not our master. Like the reverse of that is sort of the hypothesis that the main reason we walk around sort of continuing to be enslaved to sin, acting like sin is just this inevitable thing in our lives, is because we've failed to fully understand everything that Jesus has done to break the power of sin over us in our lives. Like for example, listen to what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, and I just want you to hear the language of kingship that runs through these verses. He says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions, right? Let not sin reign in your body. Another way to put that, don't let sin be your king, right? Sin is not something that has the power to force you to obey its passions. What does that mean? Verse 13, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. That means like don't don't offer up the parts of your body to be used for unrighteousness, but instead present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life 
and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. In other words, because of what Jesus Christ has already done for me and for you, because through faith we've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life, we can now offer our lives and even the parts of our body to God as instruments for righteousness. And then Paul sticks the landing. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Sin will have no dominion over you. It's not your master anymore. So if you sit here and you're a child of God the Father, if you sit here and you're an adopted brother or sister of King Jesus, if you sit here and the Holy Spirit of God dwells within you, that means that sin's not inevitable in your life. It has no dominion over you. Let not, therefore, sin reign in your mortal body. And I don't know how you need to hear that. I don't know, like, what particular specific sin struggle to which you need to apply that. But I am sure that there's some part of you that consistently surrenders the fight when, in fact, the battle has already been won for you. By King Jesus. Right? The sin you battle, it is not your master. Jesus is. Let not therefore sin reign in your mortal body. That's the first observation here, right? Obedience, it's possible. If Reuben can do it and Gag can do it and half of Manasseh can do it, by God's grace, through the power of God's spirit, we can as well. Here's the second observation. This is also significant and kind of obvious. Obedience is something we should celebrate. I want you to notice that that's what Joshua does here, right? He, he singles out the fact that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassehites have faithfully obeyed the Lord, right? He celebrates that. He recognizes that. He honors them for their obedience, now, I know if Joshua were here, he would say, of course, that obedience is a result of God's power and work in their lives. God deserves the credit and the glory for that, but he, he definitely honors the obedience of the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassehites as he sends them back to the eastern side of the promised land. Now, in our culture today, we're far more comfortable criticizing people than we are celebrating people. Haven't you noticed that? I mean, like we've made, a, we've made a spiritual discipline out of criticizing other people. It is one of our very unspiritual gifts that criticism flows from our lips far more freely and rapidly than celebration does. We have a natural instinct for criticism. You never hear somebody like talking about what an awesome boss they have, but you often hear somebody talking about how rotten their boss is. You really never hear somebody like talking on the phone boasting about what a, how, how godly their children are, but you often hear people talking on the phone about how rotten their children are. Right? You never hear somebody like celebrating what a good neighbor they have, but you hear people complaining about how their neighbor you know, leaves his trash out on the curb for three days after the refuse company has come to pick it up. Right? Like we, we've made a spiritual discipline out of criticizing other people. But among the people of God, like Joshua, we should instead embrace the opportunity to celebrate what we see God doing in and through other people. 
Romans 13 tells us, Romans 12, I'm sorry, tells us that we should outdo one another in showing honor. In other words, like that's one of the few places where scripture tells us we should compete with one another, but we should be striving against one another to show more honor than our brothers and sisters in Christ have. We should, we should live in celebration. Like we should honor and recognize and, and lift up what we see God doing in and among and through other people. That's what Joshua does here. I mean, Joshua, I'm sure he knew some stuff that the Reubenites had done that was really bad. Right? He knew the Gadites. He knew the Manassites. He'd lived with them for years. Like He could have complained about everything bad that they did, but he doesn't do that. He celebrates their obedience. And I just pray that we could, we could try that on this week. Right, this week, if, if you're married, rather than thinking about and verbalizing your spouse's many deficiencies... I know your spouse has some deficiencies, right? Only one person is married to a perfect person, right? Never mind. (laughs) I won't go there. Your spouse has deficiencies. My spouse has deficiencies. But instead of verbalizing and dwelling on the things that your spouse does poorly, they become an expert in their strengths this week. Become an expert in the things that your spouse does well, in the ways that the Lord is growing your spouse. Celebrate those things to your spouse, more significantly, to other people. When you have a conversation about your spouse with somebody, leave that somebody thinking better of your spouse than they did at the beginning of that conversation. And if you're talking about your wife, make sure that your friend knows that you think a lot of your wife, that you really love her, and and leave your friend impressed by the work that the Lord is doing in your wife's life. If you have children, don't verbalize the laundry list of ways that your children could improve. Verbalize the ways that you see the Lord growing them, stretching them, helping them to mature. Celebrate those things. Son, you're not nearly as much of a jerk as you used to be. No, it doesn't have to sound like that, but you know, just celebrate. Like I see, I see the Lord like really marking you with patience, in grace and kindness in a way that I didn't always see. Like I see, if your children are really young, I see that you're much more willing to share your stuff than you used to be. Or just single out, like a way that you can praise your children, give God the credit, but honor your children for the way that you see him working in them. And then even like among our church family, let's make a point of celebrating to one another, like to their faces, and to anyone else who will listen. The evidences of the Lord's grace that you see in and through people right here in this family. Rather than just talking about the things that you wish were different, rather than talking about the things that you're not satisfied by, the things that rub you the wrong way, celebrate the good things that you see God doing in and through people here. Let's make that a part of who we are as God's people. That's what we see right here. Joshua celebrating evidence of the Lord's grace in the lives of the Reubenites and Gadites and Manassites. May we follow suit. All right, I've got to book it. Um, the eastern tribes, they go home. But on the way, they make a stop. Look at verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, 
the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Now that seems like it came out of nowhere. Verse 10 The eastern tribes, they stop on their way home and they build an altar, verse 10 says, of imposing size. So it's not a small altar, big altar. Verse 11, the other tribes, they hear that the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassehites have built an altar of imposing size. Verse 12, all of those tribes gather together at Shiloh and prepare to make war against the East Jordan tribes. Now what's going on here? Why does this massive altar suddenly spark something like a civil war. What's really critical that we get this church. I hope you're with me right now because this is, like there's something that is unexpectedly sweet in this passage. But again, we need to know a little bit of background. This background comes from Deuteronomy chapter 12. I won't read it to you. You can read it yourself later if you choose. The Lord was very specific about where and how His people were to worship him in Old Testament times. The pagans, right, the people who didn't worship the God of Israel, they worshiped wherever they wanted, whenever they wanted. And they built altars just anywhere it was convenient for them. The Old Testament calls them high places. And so the pagan people who lived around Israel and who were driven out of the land of Canaan, they would have set up a high place anywhere it was convenient for them to make offerings there and sacrifices there. But God, he said, don't do that. I want you to come together as one people and worship in the tabernacle. There's just to be one altar, the one place where you make your offerings and your sacrifices. Don't erect high places everywhere. Come to this one place. He wanted his priests to administer worship in that one place place. And so when the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manassehites build this altar of imposing size, suddenly it seems to everyone else in Israel, like they're about, they're, they're starting to worship like the pagans. They're starting to worship like the Canaanites, building altars wherever it was convenient to them. And so that seems to the people of Israel who lived on the west side of the Jordan River, It seems like a spiritually dangerous pathway to be walking on. It seems like the Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassehites, though Joshua has just celebrated their obedience, like they're suddenly about to stray into sin. And throughout the book of Joshua, we've seen that the sin of one individual can have grave consequences for the many, haven't we? We've seen how the sin of just a few people can lead to death and destruction and the wrath of God being poured out on the entire nation of Israel. Maybe think about the story of Achan in Joshua chapter 7. Achan, he, he grabbed hold of just a few of the devoted things. He didn't destroy everything that he was commanded to destroy when he was a part of the army that was conquering Ai. He held on to just a few of those things because he held on to a few of those things. Dozens of his fellow Israelites died and then Achan and his entire family had to be burned burned as an expression of God's just judgment against his faithless, ungodly unbelief. Right? The sin of just a few, like corrupting the many. And so the tribes on the west side of the Jordan, they hear, man, those East Jordan tribes are building an altar. It sounds like they're worshiping like the pagans. 
And so they arm up and they go after them. Let's read verse 13. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. Now, I'm just going to pause right here. Y'all, later today, you really need to read the story of Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest. He's like the Chuck Norris of Old Testament priests. So Numbers 25, 1 through 13, that's for free. Talk about it over lunch, I don't care, but this is an impressive dude. This shows you how serious the Western tribes are about the sin they believe the Eastern tribes are committing. They send Eleazar, and then they send like a representative head of every clan and every tribe. Verse 15, and they came to the people of of Reuben, the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, right, here's their concern. Listen to these words. Verse 16, thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith? that you have committed against the God of Israel and turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord. And just hear, hear the passionate appeal in their voices. Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. Now, the sin at Peor, that's the story about Phineas. Again, Numbers 25, 1 through 13, but you hear their appeal. Like, haven't you seen the suffering and the sorrow and the death that come in among the people of God when we sin like this? Haven't you had enough of that? Don't you hear, like, the, the heartfelt appeal for the holiness of the nation? Keep reading, verse 18. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. So it's not just like that you guys are gonna suffer, it's that we're all gonna suffer because God's gonna be angry with all of us. Verse 19, but now, if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Again, it's just this this heartfelt appeal from brother to brother. Don't do this. Don't wander into sin like this. Haven't we experienced the consequences of sin enough? Haven't we endured the wrath of God against our sin enough? Don't do this, brothers and sisters. Now, one of the lies that our culture has embraced really wholeheartedly is that your spiritual life is a personal and private matter, full stop. What I mean is, like, in, in our very consumeristic and individualistic society, like, we've been told by our culture that your faith is something that matters to you and not to me, and my faith is something that matters to me and not to you. 
right? Our culture tells us that we're supposed to kind of mind our own spiritual business and that my spiritual business doesn't pertain to you and your spiritual business doesn't pertain to me, right? Our culture tells us that we should just kind of keep to ourselves, not let anybody in and not let anything out. That's what our culture tells us. The Bible says the opposite. The Bible says that your spiritual business is my spiritual business, and my spiritual business is your spiritual business, which means that if you see me building an altar in a place where I ought not to build an altar, but if you see me doing something that the Lord has expressly forbidden, then the loving thing for you to do is not to turn the other way. It's not to look away and just hope that that works out okay for me. No, the loving thing for you to do is to come in and get in my face and lovingly, tenderly say, James, don't you know that the Lord said don't build an altar there? Right? The loving thing for you to do is to make my spiritual business your spiritual business. Right, my well-being is your responsibility in the same way that your well-being is my responsibility, spiritually speaking, because we're family. And families, they don't turn their back on one another when somebody's like wandering away from the Lord. But if one of my children like is wandering out on the street, his cars are whizzing by, right? Like it's not loving for me to just look over and say, man, hope he doesn't get nailed by those cars, right? I hope that turns out okay. It's not loving. The loving thing for me to do in that moment is to grab him by his shoulders and like him, like we know it's going to be one of the boys, not the daughter, but grab him by his shoulders and say, dude, don't do that, right? Like that's the loving thing is to get in his business because he's wandering into a direction that is dangerous. That's true for us spiritually as well. That's what we see in Israel here, right? All of these Western tribes, they, they fear that the Eastern tribes are wandering into sin And so they arm up and they go and they say, don't do this. Let us intervene lest all of us incur the wrath of God unless you perish because of your sin. It's just a beautiful picture. The kind of love that Christians owe one another. We're bound into a family by God himself through the blood of Jesus Christ. And brothers and sisters treat each other like brothers and sisters especially when those brothers and sisters start to wander. That's what Israel does. It turns out, though, there was a misunderstanding. Verse 21. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord. The mighty one, God, the Lord. That's repeated deliberately for emphasis. This is a statement of faithfulness, of fidelity, of spiritual integrity. The Reubenites and the Gadites and the Manassites, they're not wandering from the Lord. They go on. He knows and let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. That's sweet, brothers and sisters. What these eastern tribes say is, look, if what we did was disobedient, just just kill us now. Right? If we did this so that we could offer offerings in a convenient location for ourselves, despite what the Lord says, kill us now. But, verse 24, we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? 
For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offering, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you, and between our generations after us, that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings, so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Man, what a sweet moment. Do you understand what's happening? It would be, it would be easier for us to understand what's happening. Like if we could right now kind of picture like the Jordan River Valley flowing among us and see the way the mountains rise up on this side and the mountains rise up on the other side. See the long stretch of the Jordan River before us. Like if we could see that, we could, we could begin to picture the way that geography has the opportunity to divide the people of God in this moment in their history. Right? We'd be able to picture the fact that the tribes on the east side of the Jordan over time could easily become culturally, racially, ethnically, socioeconomically, linguistically separate from the rest of the people. If we could see that, then we could understand their concern. They're not building this altar so they can make sacrifices. They're building this altar as a testimony to their unity with one another. In the generations to come, they want to be able to look at the altar and say, no, we belong to them, we belong to the Lord. And they want the people in the West to be able to look at that altar and say, they belong to us. They belong to the Lord. This altar, it's a statement of the unity of the people of God. And look at how it's received. Verse 30, when Phinehas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. We know that God's working because you're not wandering away. We know that God is working because you're unified with us. And then they celebrate that unity. Verse 32, then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest and the chiefs returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, to the people of Israel and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness for, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. 
I hope that we'll sit with that picture of the unity of God's people. I mean, Brittany opened with that earlier today. There's so many opportunities for us to be divided, right? We don't need geography to divide us, right? We sit in this room, we come from different uh, socioeconomic backgrounds, we come from different cultural backgrounds, we come from different races and ethnicities, we have different political views, we have different social views, we have different understandings of what is right and what is wrong, and then just add on top of that, right, we get all sorts of wound up with athletic competitions, There's so many opportunities for the people of God to be divided. But may we, like the people of Israel on this moment, be committed to the unity of God's people. Because it's the unity of God's people that will endure church. Every relationship that you have, every relationship that I have in this life will one day fail us. Either before death or in the end when we die. But then, if we're in Christ will pass through the valley of the shadow of death and will emerge before the throne of heaven and will be numbered among a great multitude, the people of God who will worship God around his throne forever and ever and ever. That people will endure. And the way that we will help that people endure in this life is we'll be committed to one another the same way that these Israelites are committed to one another. We'll love one another enough to be in one another's business. We'll care about one another enough that when somebody who's really suffering walks into the worship gathering at 11 a.m. on a Sunday, right, it's not strange for us to care for him. It's not strange for us to meet his needs. Rather, even before he's through the door, he's greeted and loved and embraced with the hope of serving him so that he, too, can cross the finish line, pass through the valley of the shadow of death, and be numbered among the saints for eternity. That's the work that the Lord is doing, I pray, in our church and through our church. I'm so glad that you're here with us as we journey in that direction together. Pray with me. God, we pray that you would make us faithful. We pray that you would Help us to steward the relationships that you've given us with one another. We pray that you would move us to to care deeply about one another so that we're willing to, to have the hard conversation when somebody seems to be building an altar that they shouldn't build. We pray that you give us the kind of teeth that true, genuine love has among the people of God. And we pray that you would receive glory now and in eternity from the way that we care about and love one another. We pray that now in the name of Jesus.